everybody. Welcome to another edition of The Lighter Side of Serial Killers here on the Boom Bastic Media Network. I am your host, Keith Rovere. I'm an author and collector of true crime art and memorabilia. I spent, gosh, over 20 years now in prison aftercare and rehabilitation in one form or another. Um, I mean, through COVID, uh, I had to take a break, obviously. A lot of the prisons um, had no visitors, so it was mostly through um, pen pal. And some facilities even have apps and tablets now where you can do video chats. Um, you can send like 30-second videos, or you can do a live video chat. Some facilities have. Uh, I do that all the time with Dana Gray and Louise Turpin, who have been on the podcast. They're allowed 15-minute um, videos, which is cool, live feed, just like a Zoom, basically. Um, you can send emails back and forth, which is great. Um, you can have phone calls through the tablets. Uh, and some facilities, I mean, most it's usually either a 15-minute conversation or a half-hour conversation at different prison facilities. Um, the quality is so-so. Uh, but apps like JPay, uh, Securus, I think JPay and Securus are the same now. They merged into one. A lot of JPays, um, people who had JPay are switching to Securus. I think they might be one and the same now. There's also GTL Getting Out is another popular one. And GTA uh, Video Visits, uh, they have an app separate for the video. I think it's called uh, Go Visit, something like that, Go Visits. Um, that's where the video calls are at. I mean, when you had JPay, you can upload uh, like 30-second videos. You can send back and forth to each other. Um, I've done that a lot with, uh, with different people throughout the years. Um, so technology is improving in some facilities and in other prison facilities, especially those like in Arizona, especially where, man, that's just lock up and throw away the key. You're going to commit a crime. If you have the urge to kill and to do bad things, do not do it in Arizona. Uh, we talked to a few people there. Uh, I mean, Sean Atwood, um, the, the, what do they call him? The, uh, not the Wolf of Wall Street, but they call him like the Wolf of England or something like that. Um, he has a great story. You can see his podcast. I have all his books. Um, I talked to him a few times, got a bunch of signed books from him. He, when he was in Arizona, um, oh, my gosh, the, the, the horrible conditions that were there. Um, and they're still there. Um, Charles Reinhardt, you might have heard me talk about, one of the greatest true crime artists out there, very detailed, especially in the dark arts. He was, he's in Arizona on death row. Um, and literally, when, the food that they give or the scraps that they make dog food and cat food out of, it'll say on the label, some people call it the red death, uh, red death meat. Um, it says on the label, not for human consumption. This is not a myth. This is facts. Um, the amount of money the state gives per person to inmates, some of them, it's ridiculous. You're getting like 50000 um, Some of the, the higher income states, like New York and other places, get over $70,000 per inmate. I mean, some might be a little more backwoodsy. You might be like, you know, $25,000, $30,000. But even that, you know, the average wage here in America was what, $50,000, something like that? You can live comfortably. Off of 50 grand a year. So the money they give the state per person, you think that's going to the person to aid him or her when they're feeding them food not for human consumption? Um, the sticker that it says that on the label, no, it's just all about making money. Um, they don't want to put the money into rehabilitation. It's even worse when you're on death row. But then they have an excuse for why. You're not going back into society. You know, Forget treating them as human beings. Yes, they've done a violent offense. We're going to, we're going to talk about that today. Um there are evil people in this world, but there are also people, normal people like me and you that have brain abnormalities um, that we're going to look at that causes them to do. It almost it takes away their free will to not commit or to commit violent offenses. 
We're going to look at a, a bunch of studies. If you're familiar with my book, The Stew Review, you might have heard some of these stories. Uh, that's UYU, as in Yumasaki, uh, his story. Um, what was going on in his mind as somebody with Asperger's autism, um, psychotic, schizophrenic, abused by his father when he was younger, and all these things play a role. Uh, what a mother does while she's pregnant um, highly increases the odds that the child's going to become a violent offender. We'll look at tons of different studies uh, called longitudinal studies, which means they'll follow like a thousand people from birth up until you know late teens. And see what their mother, like how many cigarettes was your mother smoking during different trimesters? Was she drinking? What was her um, food intake like? What kind of vitamins was she giving her? What kind of a, a healthy, balanced diet? Because every cigarette she smoked increases the odds that a child's going to become a violent offender. Why? Because it stops the oxygen to the child's brain when you're smoking. So the more you smoke, the more oxygen uh, deficient now that baby is uh, inside the womb. The more you drink and do drugs, crappy diet, um, fetal alcohol syndrome, babies. I'm sure you've seen pictures of what that baby looks like. You know, that's the thing. I mean, you have a mother who's smoking a pack or two a day, heavily on drugs, heavily drinking, certainly is not going to have a well-balanced diet, maybe didn't even want the child, certainly it's not going to be raised in a loving environment, you know, when it's in a crack house. And you see this beautiful baby being born, clearly um, you can see... Um, the alcohol syndrome in his eyes, the droopy eyes and the ears and the, the almost like that little cleft above the lip, you know, when you have the fetal alcohol syndrome babies. You look at this like one or two-year-old beautiful baby, boy or girl, and you say, wow, beautiful baby. But knowing that the percentage and the, the chance that this child is going to be a violent offender is like 60 to 70% chance the child is going to be a violent offender uh, in teen years. Or soon after, you know, and you look in the environment that it was grown up in, what the mother was doing while pregnant, and now it turns 17 or 18, it commits an extremely violent offense, and you're like, oh, it's the kid's fault, he's evil. Well, let's backtrack a little bit to the two packs of cigarettes the mother was smoking in the womb, all the drugs that she was doing, hard drugs, heroin and crack and coke and meth, all the alcohol she drank, barely even eating. You know, the abuse that your child had physically and mentally as a child, maybe if you tried to have an abortion to the child, which also increases the odds of the traumatic effect that that's going to have in the, a child in the womb. But, ah, that's an evil kid. That's just an evil girl, evil woman. Yeah, it could be. But I think we need to open our minds up. Part of the reason why I do what I do in the books that I write, I want to open people's minds. Or maybe they're not evil. Are they born that way, created that way? It's everything. I mean, you just live a life on the streets and you're, you don't have a father in your house and I don't care what you say, we're, we're born, we're created to have a mother and a father as a husband. I don't care what you say. Be mad at me if you want. We're, we need a father figure in her life. A single mother, you are all rock stars if you're a single mother. You're a rock star. But ideally, I think you know deep down, it would certainly be better if he did have a father figure here, especially for boys, obviously, I'm talking to. I mean, a woman, too. So without that, you're going to seek a father figure. I don't care. I'm not talking about, you know, created by God. We can leave a religious aspect out of it. A boy needs a father figure. If he doesn't have one, he's going to find one. And you live in an urban area, high crime area, you're going to find that probably on the streets. 
where you know there's gangs and there's drugs and there's violence. You know, it's not an acceptable thing, but it's just the facts. But there's also people with brain abnormalities, which we're going to be talking about. And all my years of research, neurology, uh, and neuroscience, uh, most of your most violent serial killers who ever lived had brain injuries. What's the significance of that? Is where the brain injuries were, especially the frontal cortex. Um, more specifically, the amygdala. And we can do a little research on the amygdala, but when that's damaged or you have lesions on it or if it's you know, less in volume than a normal person, what does that affect? Well, that's where the emotions of fear are, where empathy is. It's also what I call the stop button or the brakes, where you know, if somebody, um, you're about to smack somebody for something that they did to you, you say, well, let me think about this for a minute. Well, that's your amygdala. Now imagine if yours doesn't work, or it's damaged from head injury, or just being born with a one lower in volume, let's say, where it's 20% lower in volume than a normal one. Well, you don't have the option to stop and think about it. You don't have the option. You can't say, well, if I was that person. No, you can't. You don't have their brain. If your amygdala is damaged, you know, so, and so I see the judges all the time when they're sentencing. Well, you didn't show any empathy. Well, I'm going to punish you for that. Give you a harsher sentence for that. I don't see empathy. What they don't realize is they can't. They can't. They don't have the ability to have empathy. You can't learn empathy. Outside of a miracle from the Lord, you, know, you can't grow empathy. You can know what to say. And I have head injury myself. If you look close at my head, you'll see a big dent. <laughs> not a big dent, but if I'm not wearing a hat, if you look close with a light shining on, you can see an indentation where I was in my, my grandmother's house in the backyard doing forward rolls. Now, a little bit of a hill and a little incline of the backyard. Well, I guess I lost track where I was, and I gave a head bunt to the brick wall you know, where the patio was. And I vaguely remember doing that just because I was covered in blood. I remember walking in. My mom was there. We were Italian, so we had you know Sunday afternoon dinner at two o'clock. You know, now from what they said, obviously I don't remember this. I remember the incident, covered in blood. They were freaking out. They got me to the sink, I guess, and washed me off. And it was just a little tiny nick, you know, from they saw, but it, it did make an impression, and you can still see the impression there. Me and my mom were joking about it the other day when I, when I was over there at her house helping her with something. So, empathy is not something I'm strong at. You know, for humans, I mean, I don't feel that. You can tell me the most horrible story in the world. Oh, my house burnt down last night. My wife died. The kids died. This and that. And I can't feel your pain. Now, does that make me a psychopath? Of course not. You know, now, a psychopath usually does not have empathy. But if you don't have empathy, it doesn't mean you're a psychopath. It doesn't mean I'm not going to help you out in your situation. It doesn't mean I don't want to help you out. It just means I just can't feel your pain. I just can't feel it. You know, it's weird, though, because I can do it for the animals. And I've talked to a few people who are really weak in the empathy department for humans. But I can't watch a, a commercial when they show the dogs in a shelter, you know, with that Sarah McLaughlin song in the background. I can't watch that. I can't, you tell me a, a, there's a, a movie where a dog dies? or you know, I can't watch that. You know, I have so much empathy. So I have empathy. It's not for people for some reason. It's weird. And I know a few people like me. It doesn't mean I'm a, I have a psychopathic brain. You know, I experience fear, anxiety. I certainly, my amygdala is not really damaged much because I certainly, they said, uh, I might not have empathy. 
uh, or much empathy, um, but I certainly I experience fear. Um, I have judgment. I, I have a stop button, of course. But we're going to look at some examples where the amygdala is so damaged. Um, what that really call? I mean, for example, this is back, I think it was like 2010. Um, researchers Feinstein, Damasio, and Tranel um, did a three-month trial. Um, they never gave the lady's name. They just gave her the initials S.M. S is in Sam, M is in Mary, S.M. Um, her amygdala was damaged. Now, when they, the studies that they did know, this is going to go back to the 30s uh, with monkeys. When they, when they remove the amygdala from their brain um, in the study, which you make, oh, it's a horrible thing. It's pretty bad, but we do know from this study, when they remove the amygdala from uh, monkeys, they showed no fear. They became fearless, literally to the point where, um, like snakes, where they, they, they know fear of other, other monkeys, other groups of monkeys or families of monkeys or snakes. They would walk right up to, like, deadly snakes and play with them. <laughs> like swing them around like nothing's going around. You know, their, their tongues and all that are hissing out. They're playing with the tongues, and um, they're just toying with them like a sticks. You know, and when other monkey families come in, and usually they'll be fearful. Of, no, they weren't fearful at all. They literally um, proved, they knew then that something with the amygdala tied into fear. It was, it was proven by the study did on monkeys. So what they did with this lady, SM, um, they want to try to provoke fear in her, really to test the steer. It's a groundbreaking study. Um, the first place they did, uh, or they took her, was an exotic pet store where snakes and spiders and all kind of those creepy things that creep people out. <laughs> That's what they call creepy things. Now, the first snake that they showed her, she didn't know it was harmless, but she showed no fear. They picked it up and you know, played with it and put it around her and you know, let her you know, hang around her neck. But once she found out that in that facility, or facility, in that store, there's also very dangerous and harmful snakes. She was begging, begging to touch them, to pick them up. You know, I think in my book, I, I said it was like 15 times in the study. Um, she asked and begged, you know, to, to go with the dangerous snakes. Then she saw a tarantula bin. And all she went, and there's actually a picture of this. If you look up that study, um, you see her hand trying to poke these tarantulas. Now, these aren't like friendly tarantulas, <laughs> if there's such a thing. They literally, but you see her hand going into the bin, trying to stop her from touching these uh, uh, you know, tarantulas. So clearly, uh, it did not work to instill fear in her <laughs> in there. Uh, then they took her to a sanatorium. I think Waverly Hills Sanatorium was literally voted it's the scariest haunted house in America. This isn't like you go to Wildwood if you live in South Jersey, you know, the Wildwood Boardwalk. They used to have a you know a haunted house there. This is years ago before that pier burnt down, uh, before there's a fire. Uh, but any haunted house, or you go to like the your local church has a carnival, you know, a little haunted house. It's not that. This is like legit. They're going to kill you. You know, <laughs> this level of haunted house. You know, the Waverly Hills Sanatorium. It's in Kentucky. I think Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and they put five other women with them with her uh, to go around. Now they didn't have any brain abnormalities or anything like that. And literally, without fear or hesitation, she took charge, led the women all around the haunted house. Now, these other women were freaking terrified, it says. <laughs> and I remember reading the study. Like, just, She's like, follow me. Let's go. Let's go. You know, the other women were screaming in terror. Like I said, this isn't just a mom and pop, you know, you know I set it up in a weekend haunted, haunted house. This is legit horror movie stuff. <laughs> Nothing. 
It, now, she loved it. She was smiling and laughing the whole time where the other women were crying. They were screaming. And she's trying to, you know, talk and touch them, touch with, quote, unquote, the monsters and all that. Um, literally, she said her lover of fear never went above zero. Zero in something like that. Now, you might go through a haunted house and have, you, you're going to be scared. You're going to jump and freak out. Well, I don't want to go around that corner. No fear of walking around a dark corner knowing something is going to jump out at you. No fear of snakes or any, I mean, zero fear. You know, does that make her a bad person? Certainly, obviously, she's not psychopathic. She has never killed anybody. Um, but just to show, no fear. And then the last thing they did, um, they showed her tons of movie clips. They wanted to try to get some type of emotion out of her, whether it's disgust, rage, anger, fear, nothing. Not only didn't she experience any emotion, but she went into names of some of the movies because she wanted to watch it when she got home or rent the movie or buy the movie, whatever it is. So again, the damaged amygdala um, is directly rooted to the fear, you know, to empathy and everything else. Um, and as far as we know, um, SM, as they called her, have never you know, committed a violent crime or violent offense or have been in trouble or anything like that. Um, but it just goes to show um, you don't have to be a psychopath you know, to not experience these things. But if you are a psychopath and, and killing, usually if you had an MRI done or a check, you, you know, the amygdala is usually the portion that's damaged. And another guy, you, you might have heard, if you listen to the podcast when I interviewed Nico Clue, the vampire of Paris, um, and I asked him, uh, obviously, he has he committed murder, maybe more than one, but we know one for sure. Uh, he's out now. He's just doing a uh, a tour of Europe, of some of the fam- famous cemeteries. Uh, one of my friends got to hang out with him and, and walk one of the tours over in Italy, which is cool. Um, and I asked him, do you experience fear? And really, his answer was really no. You know, for the most part, you know, somebody who, you know, in prisons and grew up in cemeteries and he's a cannibal, you know, eating, you know, taking when he worked at the morgue uh, as the assistant, um, you know, eating that fresh meat, as he says, um, and spending time in prison. He says nothing really scares him, really doesn't have fear. He did say, you know, fear maybe of large crowds and what the human race is capable of. Um, But as far as, you know, the emotion of fear like we would experience, he does not experience that. You know, I bet money if they did an MRI on his brain and study of his brain, we'll, we'll, we'll see that something is not obviously not functioning like a normal brain. You know, there's certainly we can talk about traumatic things that happen of childhood and all that. That's that's a whole different story. But with brain abnormalities, look at brain functionality. Um, fear is you know directly tied to the amygdala. And he told a story, and I knew there's a connection um, of, of Charles Whitmore. You might have heard. It's going back to the '60s. Um, there was a shooting, University of Texas. Up in a tower uh, in Austin, I believe, um, I think 1966, if I'm if I'm uh, not if I'm correct, um, about 15 people, 15, 16, I think it was 15 people that he shot. And I basically sniped that a long, you know, a, sh- a shotgun or like a rifle of some sort. Um, basically sniped off 15 people. You know, it was a couple hours that he was up there until the police, you know, finally got him. Um, the amazing thing is, and I have it here, I'm going to read it. Uh, before he did that, he killed his wife. And he killed his mother. And you hear Nico's story. I mean, Nico wanted to be him. He knew that story. That's what he wanted to do. You know, he saw a tower at the school that he was at. And he's like, man, I want to I want to do that. I want to go up to a tower and, and kill a bunch of people. And he ended up not doing that, you know, thankfully. Um, but Charles Whitman wrote a note. I want to read the note. Um, I don't want to just guess through it. Oh, here it is. 
This is the note that he left. Some of it's not legible. Some of it was typed and then some was written in hand, and some parts aren't legible. It says, Sunday, July 31st, 1966 at 6.45 p.m. I don't quite understand what is that compels me to type this letter. Perhaps it is to leave some vague reason for the actions I have recently performed. I don't really understand myself these days. Am I supposed to be an average, reasonable, and intelligent young man? However, lately, I can't recall when it started, I have been a victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. These thoughts constantly recur, and it requires tremendous mental effort to concentrate on useful and progressive tasks. In March, when my parents made a physical break, I noticed a great deal of stress. I consulted a Dr. Cochram at the University Health Center and asked him to recommend someone that I could consult uh, with about some psychiatric disorders I felt I had. I talked with a doctor once for about two hours and tried to convey to him my fears that I felt come overwhelmed violent impulses. After one session, I never saw the doctor again, and since then I have been fighting my mental turmoil alone, as it seems to no avail. After my death, I wish that an autopsy would be performed on me to see if there was any visible physical disorder. I have had some tremendous headaches in the past and have consumed two large bottles of Excedrin in the past three months. It was after much thought that I decided to kill my wife, Kathy, tonight after I pick her up from work at the telephone company. I love her dearly, and she has been as fine as a wife to me as any man could ever hope to have. I cannot rationally pinpoint any specific reason for doing this. I don't know whether it is selfishness or if I don't want her to have to face the embarrassment of my actions, uh, which surely cause her. At this time, though, the prominent reason is in my mind is that I truly do not consider this world worth living in, and I am prepared to die. I do not want to leave her to suffer alone in it. I intend to kill her as painlessly as possible. Similar reasons provoke me to take my mother's life as well. I don't think the poor woman has ever enjoyed life as she is entitled to. She was a simple young woman who married a very possessive and dominating man. All my life as a boy, until I ran away from home to join a Marine Corps. Then, after the murder of his wife... Oh, that's, this is the point where the letter says... But what I just read was typed. Then, he actually killed his wife and his mother and got back to the note. Now, this is what he wrote by hand. I imagine it appears that I brutally killed both my loved ones. I was only trying to do a quick, thorough job. If my life insurance policy is valid, please please pay off my debts. Donate the rest anonymously to Mental Health Foundation. Maybe research can prevent further tragedies of this type. Give our dog to my in-laws. Tell them Kathy loved Scoochie very much. Very much. If you can find it in yourselves to grant my last wish, cremate, cremate me after the autopsy. You know, they interviewed, you know, a few of her, um, his friends, um, this lady, Elaine Foos, or F-U-E-S-S. Um, she said even he looked perfectly normal. Even when he looked perfectly normal, he gave the feeling that he was trying to control something in himself. You know, we don't know when this tumor uh, started impacting his behavior. You know, the amygdala it was a tumor pressing up against his amygdala. Um, but he got a gold medal, you know, a, a gold conduct medal in the Marine Corps. You know, volunteer work at an IQ of 138. So a, a tumor was pressing up against his amygdala. So was he evil? Uncontrollable urges? Did that tumor really um, hinder his free will? 
Now, was it the evil inside Charles Whitmore that compelled him to commit murder? Or was it the tumor that altered his ability to have a sound mind that compelled him? Did his tumor nullify his free will? Now, if you stood before a judge, you know, back then, where they don't have the testing and you know that we have today, you know, if he if the police didn't kill him on top of that tower, it, is Charles guilty or is the tumor guilty? You know, obviously we can't convict somebody. <laughs> you can't convict a tumor. Yeah, but I think we have to take these things in consideration. I'm not saying he's not guilty and should be punished. I'm just saying we have to reevaluate, reevaluate the, the way we look at violent offenders. Let's look at their past. Let's see. Instead of just throwing, now, if you did that in Arizona, now even Texas is becoming a little bit more liberal. You know, it's not so much, you know, go to jail and, you know, death row right away. But if you're in Arizona, that's a lock, up, lock you up and throw away the key. They're not going to um, try to treat them. You know, so that's the point of what I do is, it's like, why are you so nice to these people? Why do you give them a platform? Well, to do research, to help them, to help prevent um, further uh, vile offenses. You know, look for treatment for psychopathy. Get a damaged amygdala. Okay, well, can it be repaired? No. Okay, if the answer is no and it will always be no, and you're going to have violent urges, okay, well, we gotta we got to think about this. You know, If you haven't committed a violent offense, but you certainly are thinking about it, all right, well, where can they go? What kind of counseling? So counselors uh, being schooled in something like this. Um, another example, um, they gave him name, his name Michael. He was married. Uh, his wife uh, had a previous daughter, a stepdaughter. Um, this is around 2000. Um, now, he had a master's degree in education. He was a teacher, high school teacher, I believe. Um Stepdaughter's 12 years old. Well, his wife was going through his, his work bag one day and found a porn porn magazine, the barely legal ones, you know, the ones that looks like there's little kids in there. Um, his wife confronted them all in there and said, hey, man, you can't do this. You got to take it to school. Um, they started to have some, you know, their arguments, you know, started getting a little more violent, you know, pulled, pulled her hair out one time and getting pretty aggressive and totally changed. You know, never like that, you know, in, in all the years of marriage. Um, but then he start when he, um, where is he at? Let me, let me read this exactly. Because this is pretty wild. I mean, this is, if you, the pedophile stuff, I mean, that's, that does his nerve with so many people. When a pedophile is arrested, even in jail, you know, if you see somebody who's a pedophile, you know, you you got to attack them or you'll be a target yourself. I mean, that's all, they try to keep them away from general population, sometimes even special units. Because um, pedophiles in prison, you know, you have a target on your back. And if you don't go after them yourself and you have the ability to, now you have a target on your back. But And this, again, they called him, it's not his real name, but they called him Michael um, in the article. And it says, when my stepdaughter laid down with me in her pajamas, I began to, not always, but sometimes be a little more intimate with her than I should. Somewhere deep, deep, deep inside my head, there was a little voice saying that you should not do that. But there was a much larger voice saying, what the heck? Why not? Well, he was eventually you know, convicted of molestation. Um, but the court gave him an option. Now, it wasn't, you know, going to have sex, sex. You no, know, not that it wasn't bad enough. But you can go to counseling, go to this class, or you go to, you go to jail. So I went to the, this class, 
And all he would do is hit on the women and everything else, and he basically got kicked out of class. And he says, all right, well, now you're going to jail. <laughs> you, know, you don't have a choice. Well, like the night, night or two before he went to jail, um, he went to a hospital and said, listen, I got these pains. I get this and that. And um, he's like, no, you're fine. We can't let you stay over, and I got to go back. He said, listen, if I go back to the place I'm staying, I'm going to rape the landlady or whatever you know, he was staying. He's like, I want to rape her. I want to kill her or whatever. So they admitted him. Well, with these severe, severe migraines that he was having um, – as they were watching, the, neuro- can we talk? the neurologists that were there, they saw that you know, he wasn't even walking in a straight line when he was walking around. And then he urinated on himself, and he didn't even pay attention to it. So they went, something, okay, there's something neurologically wrong here. So they found a tumor. And guess what the tumor was? Pressing up against his amygdala. So they had the surgery, took the amygdala out. I mean, took the amygdala out, took the tumor out. And all of a sudden, he started feeling this grave remorse. Um, the old Michael was back, so to speak. And you can hear, if you look it up, there's a, there's a video on YouTube you can find. Um, you know, if you kind of do pedophile, Michael, amygdala, you should be able to find it. And they interview his wife. He said, the old Michael was back. You know, invited him back into the house. And like for a year or so, it was the old Michael. But after about a year or so, she found more porn magazines. You know, those pedophile urges started to creep back. What happened? The tumor started growing back up against the amygdala. So they took the tumor out again. And as far as we know, he's never had any pedophile urges ever since. Now, the wife divorced him. You know, you, I mean, understandably, you, know, you cannot take that risk um, with him doing something like that again. Um, certainly understandable. But when you hear ped- uh, somebody being a pedophile, did he have the urges to stop? Having pedophile urges? Did he have the free will and the capacity? No. Not what that tumor was causing in his brain. It's like saying to me, I'm a straight guy. I'm not attracted to men. If you are, hey, that's your thing. To me, no. To me, I'm only attracted to women. So if you were to ask me, there's a law that the new president just passed saying it is illegal and forbidden for you to be attracted to women. You can understand how impossible that is, <laughs> you know? I mean, even if you're gay, if you're a woman, a woman, and you're only attracted to women, and they pass the and say, hey, you have to be, and that's what society teaches you anyway, right? You're a woman, you have to be you know, attracted to a man. And so you have to change. But you don't ha- you can't, you know? You could put me, and I joked about this before to somebody, maybe I told in a podcast or somebody else, if you put me, you know, somehow I got stranded, on a on a deserted island, with who's let's call Brad Pitt or you know a very good looking guy, whatever new hot male actor is on there, and we're both buck naked, knowing that I'll never have, uh, I'll never see another woman the rest of my life, never have sex again with a woman, and I'm looking over at who the world deems as the sexiest, hottest man in the world, and he's buck naked. His name is Brad Pitt. If we live another 20 years in that island, I'll never have a urge <laughs> to have sex with Brad Pitt. It's not it. I don't have the ability. It's just not going to happen. So when someone, the tumor is pressing up against your amygdala and you have these pedophile urges, you don't have the ability to stop. So again, is he evil? Now, he did an evil thing, but he's an evil person or does he have a brain abnormality that is causing his mind to think, over his free will. He does not have free will to stop having these urges because of a brain abnormality. 
That's what I want the listener to get. So when we hear about a violent offender, let's just not jump right to the fact um, that they're evil. Or what if you um, what if you hear a story that, like on the news, you listen to the evening news, and you hear a man in a crowded restaurant was overheard using a, a white man using a, a horrible racial slur to an Afri- African-American woman in front of her little child. And then he struck her right in the throat in front of everybody, and she died shortly after. What is your first impressions of this man? You know, Get that image in your head. All you know is that a white man used a racial slur, the N-word, loudly in front of a crowded restaurant, in front of African-American woman and her child, and then you heard he struck her in her throat in front of her child, and she died right there at the restaurant. What is your impression of that man? Well, you're probably thinking racist, evil, um, KKK, you know, all, all that, all those kind of thoughts. But what if I told you he has Tourette's syndrome? It's a brain abnormality that gives him a uh, a case of Tourette's, uh, one of the worst cases. And I have a friend. I haven't talked to him in a while, though. Um, he has one of the worst cases of Tourette's, even after some surgeries. He's been in my house numerous times. And um, what they do is now there's different kinds of Tourette's, I guess you could say. Um, somewhere you see a heavy set person, you're going to yell out fatso. Uh, maybe if you're a white person, uh, a black person, and you see a white guy, you're going to say, hey, cracker. You know, or a white person, you can use you know, the N word, which is, you know, obviously I'm not going to say that, you know. But that's what he had. And so he used the N-word was just his form of Tourette's. He has no control over that. And those spastic hand movements and foot gestures, well, it was just a Tourette's giving him an uncontrollable uh, hand motion just happened by accident to strike her in the throat. He's married to a black woman. His whole life he spends for social justice in the African-American community. There's not a racist bone in his body, but because of a brain abnormality, the N-word came out, struck her in her throat. So guilty or not guilty? Let that sink in for, for a minute. You know, it does not have control. It does not have free will to stop. Or how about in, uh, in New York? There was a surgeon delivering a baby. After he, committed, after he delivered the baby, he carved his initials. And if you look online, you can find it. Now, you can see a picture of this. Not small, carved large initials in the woman's stomach. You think, that's right out of a horror movie. This is a true story. You think, what kind of an evil, sadistic person would do such a thing? Well, turns out, he has what's called Pick's disease. In the frontal cortex, the frontal lobe disorder called P, right? it's kind of a branch off of Alzheimer's. Uh, Alzheimer's like dementia, um, where your personality is going to completely change. You know, extreme uh, inappropriate behavior, as they say. Now, this wasn't diagnosed until after the incident, but once it was, the girl, the lady herself, did not want him to do any jail time. Once the evidence was out there and realized it was his brain abnormality that caused him to carve his initials in the woman's stomach. 
Now, there was a settlement in the case, I believe, and some money obviously was exchanged, but I don't believe he did any jail time. But on your first thought, you know, hearing a story like that uh, with the man in a restaurant or him carving his initials or now Charles Whitman on top of a tower, we think evil, 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 which society does. And, hey, lock him up, throw away the key, but let's do a little more research on um, are they evil? Could be. There are certainly evil people in the world. But I'm giving you cases of specific factual cases of brain abnormalities uh, taking away somebody's free will. I mean, that's the question. Are they taking away somebody's free will? With Tourette's, they certainly are. With having feelings and emotions. Now, was he, with that, was quote-unquote Michael strong enough to not touch his daughter? Yeah, you can certainly argue that. I mean, obviously he's guilty. He needs treatment and help. Uh, even taking a tumor out, I mean, you're still, in a sense, I mean, that's the argument. Are you still responsible um, for these things? Now, more and more, you see our courts using MRIs. Where a lawyer can point out, look at this brain, which is normal. Now look at this brain. You know, see all these colors that aren't in there in the normal brain. See these areas of the brain that do not work. You know, it's the brain that's on trial. Now we also want to open up Pandora's box here. Every single court case, you know, you charge shoplifting. Well, look at my MRI. <laughs> I was slapped as a child. Now we're talking about extreme cases here, of course, especially with the violent offenders. Um. But that's what I want to really get across today uh, in this podcast. Um, it's one of the goals in my life and some of the books that I write and the people that I talk to, find out more about them. Uh, my first book, Serial Killers in Heaven and Victims in Hell, question uh, mark. I gave a list of some of the most famous serial killers of all time and factual evidence of majority of them had severe head trauma in the frontal lobe, in the frontal cortex. They had head injury. Again, am I saying that they aren't, you know, they didn't come into horrible things and shouldn't be in prison? I'm not saying let them out. Um, now, if there's a cure, hey, if we can cure brain damage, you know, I think that would prove that they won't have those urges anymore. They'd be the first people to step up and say, well, I'll take that surgery. I don't want to have these urges. So that's kind of the goal of what, what I do. Um, you know, people, oh, how can you interview these people and, and write about these violent offenders and give them platforms? And what about the victims? Well, I have a whole chapter in my first book about what about the victims. I'm doing it for victims and potential um, uh, more victims. So we can help with getting information to a mother who's pregnant, you know, and seeing the odds um, that her child has become a violent offender from every cigarette she smokes increases the odds. Alcohol, diet. Um, giving pamphlets or information in your hands. What can you do? Uh, you, I mean, you can, you know, Facebook is one thing. Hey, here's some information, but, you know, someone who's living in a shelter and a complete drug addict is probably not going to be on Facebook. You know, volunteer, go to shelters, talk to women, you know, get information in your hands. You know, that can prevent future child violent offenders by simply getting information in the mother's hands and local shelters or, or wherever your community has um, the bad areas. Whatever requires, requires sacrifice. I've been in prison aftercare most of my adult life in Camden, New Jersey, you know, going there at night by myself in a fairly dangerous area week after week before COVID. It was, you know, on Thursday nights, you know, it's going to require a little sacrifice. Um, but you know, how much do you care? You know, that's why if you read my book, the story of you, the last chapter, the story of you, why owe you, what are you doing to help about it? Do you care? Do you not care? So that's just a few things. Uh, I wanted to talk about today. Um, 
I just got off the phone right before this podcast with Bruce Davis from the Manson family. Uh, he already had part one of our conversation with him. Um, I sent him a list, as you heard on the podcast, of nine-page questions for Bruce. Uh, we started answering today. Now, we can only do 15-minute conversations. You only have time for one, but starting with his childhood. Uh, we're going to go through everything, everything you possibly think about from all the questions you guys sent Excuse me, sent me and everything I could think of on different topics with the Manson family you heard a little bit about on our, our part one when we first met Charlie. You know, sitting in a bathtub, you know, in the, <laughs> under a willow tree, an old antique bathtub, and uh, a bunch of girls dancing around him, bathing him, smoking joints. And we're going to hear a lot. There's a lot of stories, doom buggy stories. Uh, he was at, they weren't really at Spawn Ranch too long, he said. Um, they only had a couple doom buggies, maybe some of the old documentaries. Uh, they mostly focus on Charlie's doom buggy, jazzing that thing up, big gas tank, that little thing that he held a sword in. Um, but they weren't really there too long before they got busted. They couldn't really enjoy all the doom buggies um, or get them all up and running. But we'll get into that. I'm going to continue the series with Keith Jesperson, the happy face killer. I just want to go through all eight victims. Uh, we already talked about Tanya Bennett, Claudia. Um, we have a couple more coming up. I got another our podcast is already finished with him. I was going to upload that today, but I want to talk today about um, brain abnormalities um, and the advancements of technology, neurology. You know, we get to a, you know the omega vitamin, omega three vitamins. You know, fish oil basically. You know, if you do, if you look at a study of uh, the nations with the most violent offenses, it's the nations that eat the less uh, least amount of fish. It's crazy. You know, nations eat the most amount of fish, get that good fish roll, that omega-3, whatever, you know, inside of them. They commit the least amount of violent offenses. You know, if you read my book, I'm not going to go through all the case studies in the book. Um, but famous neurologists do studies where um, violent offenders, I went to a, uh, I think it was, it was a juvenile facility, uh, of violent offenders, even acting out even in the prison. Um, I think they believe it's called a double-blind study where in a juice box they gave a percentage of the fish oil. Omega-3, I think a 10-milligram dose or something. Um, the second group, they said they were going to put it in the juice box, but they never did. And the other group, they didn't give anything to. Well, but, you know, you can't fake it, you know, fake it when you think you're getting it, but not. Well, only those who had the fish oil had a significant decrease uh, in getting in trouble at that facility. Forget the amount of time, a year or two years, something like that. I forget the exact time. You can, I can look it up in my book. Or you can, in the story review, I, I, I post the study itself. So there's something to it. And they, they repeated that study over and over again in different places. So there's something with omega, the omega-3, the fish oil. There's something to that um, that decreases your urge you know, to be a violent offender in the brain. The other study, um, when they electrically charged the portion of the brain, there's one kid I also published in my book. Like, and I forget his name on top of my head, but, you know, you'll have to buy the book to read it. Um, no inhibition. The only time he experienced joy when he was running from the police and doing violent things and getting arrested. The only thing that gave him joy. Um, did the MRI, the study on his brain, they say because the part of the brain that really um, makes you want to do stuff, you know, uh, not just be, you know, somebody lazy. Now, that part of the brain wasn't, was functioning less than a normal, normal brain. So what they did. I, I couldn't tell how to do it, but they hooked up his brain to a computer. Uh, and the Pac-Man, you all remember Pac-Man? You know, I'm a little bit older than probably some of you, uh, if you're younger here, but you probably heard of the video Pac-Man. Well, they hooked his brain up, so the only way he could move the Pac-Man was using the part of the brain um, 
that was lower functioning, lower in volume, whoever it was. And over 30, either 30 hours or 30 sessions, I forget what it was, um, drastically improved that area of his brain. From him concentrating on that area of his brain, now I say electrical, um, not, not electrical shock, uh, electrodes in there. This is another study. I mixed it up. But just by him studying, him moving the Pac-Man with the area of the brain that wasn't functioning properly, it started functioning properly. It started working like it normally should. And it was a great interview uh, that I posted with him in there saying he had all his ambition back. You know, he had no no ambition before. Again, that's the area of brain that causes this ambition. It was his all, the only time I had fun was when I'm running from the police. Now I'm enjoying life. You know, he's back to school. He got good grades. You know, as far as we know, is never really in trouble again. So there is signs of improvement for brain abnormalities. Now, there's also the, you know, the electrodes. No, it's painless, completely pain, like electric shock therapy. Um, and I post that study in there. Uh, so that's working. Now, baby steps. Not like you snap your fingers and you're cured. You can't go from living a life like BTK or Ted Bundy or Richard Ramirez and snap your fingers and do a couple little conversations and you're healed, so to speak. But there is improvement. You know, in neurology and, and, and psychopathy, uh, psychopathic brain. Um, again, you can have a, you know, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Fallon, not, not not the talk show host, but Jimmy Fallon, I believe, is a, pretty much the leader of neurology and psychopathy. He has a couple of great books on it. Um, he has a psychopathic brain. He can look at a, a, an MRI image of the brain and tell you if, you have a, if you're a psychopath or not. That's the detail we get now in MRIs. Now, he doesn't know the person's name. He just looks at it. Well, Somebody put his brain scan in front of him. It's a god psychopath. It was his brain. He's like, I have never had the urge to kill. But when you have lack of empathy, you know, and it's not like like I've, I'm divorced myself. You know, go figure. Lack of empathy. Um, but I've been told numerous times, like when my ex is, uh, who was like, I mean, if you have like me, you're, you're you're lacking the empathy department. The girlfriend you should be dating is probably not somebody who is very overly emotional and compassionate. <laughs> it's not a good mix, hence my divorce. Um, she needs to be emotionally stimulated. You know, I, I need to read the room, read her, you know, read her mind. You know, she wasn't really forthcoming in her emotions. I can't read. I, I don't have empathy. I remember one time uh, we're going to spend the evening at her father's place, have a barbecue, and talk about some cool things. And one of her friends died, overdosed. You know, she helped out with some drug programs. Her friend died, overdosed, and. You know, she's upset. She's crying on the, on the step of the office uh, where she was uh, helping out, volunteering at. Well, I can't feel that. You know, I, I feel bad for her. In a sense, I can't feel her emotion. I, wa- I don't want her to cry. I know what to say. You know, I can't empathize with her, so to speak. Um, but when her father came, who's very you know compassionate and consoling her and stuff, I think I asked him a question about later on tonight at the barbecue. You know, they, he looked at me almost in shock. He's like, "Well, I'm just going to take care of my daughter right now." You know, see, I, there's things I, I miss, you know, because, I mean, uh, but with, with Fallon, um, his wife said the same thing. You know, they did, but once you know, okay, if this person doesn't experience empathy, then you can move on with your relationship. I didn't really know that at the time. This is going back in my young 20s. This is, you know, 20 years ago uh, myself. Now I know things. Now I'm up front. Like, listen, if you're going through a horrible time, I'm not going to be able to experience your pain. You know, so you have to give me a little slack here. I'm, un, I'm unable to. I'm not a bad guy. I want to help you, and I will help you. you know, but my help is more like you need to do X, Y, and Z uh, to kind of help you out of the situation. Um, 
I can't get into the trenches and hold you arm by arm and say, we're going to go through this together. It's not in me. I'm like, no, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. I'll help you out. You know, I'm like that Mr. Fix-It, Mr. Fix-It guy if you ask me. I just can't feel your emotions because some people, you hear a sad story and you see the person crying along with them right? because they're feeling their emotion, and that's wonderful. You know, Part of me is glad I don't, I don't want that. Yeah, you know, I don't want to feel people's pain. You know, I'm kind of happy the way I am. You know, people think, oh, you don't have empathy. Yeah, I'm kind of glad I don't. You know, I mean, there's some things that'll catch me. It takes extreme things, uh, aside from animals. You know, like you know, especially dogs. You know, I have empathy towards dogs. And once in a while, I'll catch a, a story, and whether it's a silly thing like American Idol, hear somebody's story, and they have the most amazing performance, or something will catch me emotionally, or a movie. You know, I'll tear up a little bit. Like, what was that, Brad? Speaking about Brad Pitt, um, um, was that River Runs Through It? Something like that. I remember tearing up a few. Like, everybody died. <laughs> you know? So it's in there. You know, those of us who struggle with empathy, it's deep, deep in there. Something will catch us on the right day. Um, but it's it's just not like a normal brain, I guess. So who knows? I'm sure that's partly why I can do things like this, talk to serial killers, because I that empathy, because I hear people commenting, not a lot, and not too many people give me a hard time. How can you do that knowing what they did to the victims? I don't have that empathy. I don't feel that. You know, I know what's right and wrong, you know, but I can't feel that emotion. So maybe that's why I have an easier time talking to some people who have committed some horrible crimes. I don't know. It is what it is. Um, but, again, this is called the lighter side of serial killer. So I do try to show the human side, if you will, because I'm probably most of them do have a brain abnormality. Now, when you look into it and get deep to it, I talked to Keith Jesperson a little bit about it. He's never got a study done, and he's probably not going to. Um, he doesn't want anything that could hurt his case if he um, tried to get transferred to another facility or parole or something happened to come up. So a lot of these violent offenders don't want any evidence, uh, good or bad, uh, in their cases. So it's kind of hard to test people like this or the BTKs of the world because it could potentially hurt them if something came back to court or a new law was passed. So it's kind of hard. Um, but at least we have enough. Um, There's so many phenomenal authors out there uh, and writers in neurology studying psychopathy. Um, and brain abnormalities. Again, I'm just doing my little part, uh, bringing it to the surface. So anyway, I uh, figured I'd share some of that with you, hoping to open up a couple of your eyes. Again, we got some more Keith Jesperson coming up, uh, and Bruce Davis and the Manson family, everybody seems to be pretty excited about. Uh, David Berkowitz, uh, hopefully is coming up soon. As soon as I get approved, it's taking a little while for my phone number to get approved from him. Uh, another serial killer, um, I don't say borderline pedophile. I don't know if he has sex with him or not, but he killed a couple kids. Wayne Garrison does amazing artwork. He's coming up. Lewis Lent, who I talk about in my book, uh, my conversations with him, uh, is a pedophile killer. Um, I I'm trying to talk him into the podcast. He's still up in the air. Didn't say no. He's just you know thinking about it. Um, Haddon Clark, the cross-dressing cannibal, is going to be an amazing podcast. Uh, he's going to be coming up hopefully uh, this month in a few weeks. He said he wants to do it in March. Talking to him for a very long time. Very, very interesting character to say the least as he likes dressing up in women's clothes. His parents forced him to dress up in women's clothes as a child. And I'm sure it had you know psychological impact for it to this day as he's more comfortable in women's clothing. Um, but we're going to hear all about that and his whole story uh, coming up soon. Well, I thank everybody for listening. Um so everyone's about an hour in. I think I've babbled long enough for this episode. So thanks again uh, for listening to the podcast. Check me out all my social media pages. Follow, 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 and share. The podcast is growing. More followers and more views uh, every week. So continue to share the word of the podcast. Let's grow bigger and bigger and bigger. 
Um, check out my books, The Story of You. That's Y-U, Story of You, Yumasaki uh, with brain abnormalities. You can go way more in-depth than this. I'm just, I just touch a, uh, scratch the surface of the book. Uh, I didn't even talk about Yumasaki himself. Uh, I just talked about some of the studies I published in the book. Um, there's countless studies that I, I put in that book, The Story of You. So check that out on Amazon. I got signed copies here if you want. Uh, Yumasaki himself uh, made little bookmarks because he can't receive the book and sign and ship it back. Too expensive to do. His facility gives him a hard time there in Texas on his unit. Um, it took him about three or four months just to receive my book. Uh, it's a whole other story. Uh, but he made bookmarks. He had some artwork on it. He signed it. Uh, so if you want a copy of his his bookmark, personally signed, an autographed copy, you know, send me a message. You can follow me easily on social media. Uh, David Berkowitz sent me a large ta- uh, stack of pamphlets depicting a story from the son of Sam uh, to the son of Hope um, that are giving away also with signed copies or 40 bucks. So um, shipping depends on where you're at, of course. Send me a message if you like that. And obviously the first book, if you're interested in how can faith, can God truly grant salvation to a serial killer, a violent offender? Now, I talked to multiple people I've been friends with over the years and share some of their letters with their permission from Mark David Chapman, John Lennon Killer, uh, Louis Lent we talked to, David Berkowitz, Tex Watson from the Manson family, Bruce Davis from the Manson family, uh, Tiffany Cole, youngest woman on Florida's death row, uh, Danny Gray, serial killer, actually wrote the foreword to that book. You know, is, can it be that God will grant salvation to a serial killer and the person, the victim that he killed, go to hell? You know, if you believe in religious things. So we examine Christianity in the life of some violent offenders, and is it possible? You know, is that the way Christianity works? And we examine. It's not a how to be a Christian book. I just examine Christianity in life of people. Um, is that the case? Can are they really Christian, or are they just you know full of it, putting on a show for a parole board? So that's what that book's all. That's a small book. You get it for like seven bucks online. Again, I got signed copies here if you want that. Uh, so let me know. Other than that, again, share, share, share the podcast with all your friends and family. Anybody who likes true crime, or anybody who's just into uh, psychology. You know, and brain abnormalities and neurology. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, see ya! (laughs) 